Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. All right, welcome back to CounterPoints, and we promise we are working on intro music, so you have to stop kind of humming something to yourself <laughs> when, you see, when you see that logo. We're going to talk most of this show about midterms, midterm fallout, uh, leadership elections in Congress that are shaken up by the midterm fallout. But first, uh, two pieces of news breaking last night and this morning. First, uh, it, uh, the new inflation report shows the numbers cooling, 7.7% mm. annualized. Now, Nobody's going to uh, celebrate 7.7% inflation year over year, but compared to 8, 8% plus, that's the, that's, a, that's the trajectory that you want to go. Uh, how do you think, and there was also, and we're going to talk to Sirota for a weekend segment, uh, Sirota flagged this Morgan Stanley report that said that the way that voters responded to inflation in this midterm suggests that there might actually be more policy room for fiscal policy. Hmm. That actually, wait, maybe maybe full employment is something that people like more than they dislike inflation. So they were basically warning their clients, look out, uh, there could be some more fiscal headroom here for policymakers in Washington. So don't get your hopes up too much on a grand bargain that cuts Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, which Biden took off the table yesterday. So the fact that you're now seeing this cooling, could this uh, signal the end of or, or the beginning of the end of the Fed's monetary policy tightening, you think? I hope it's the beginning of the end, but I still do worry that it's more of the beginning um, and that we mm -hmm. don't know how bad this is going to continue to get because, again, it, you, the left makes this point a lot. There's really nothing Joe Biden can do about Vladimir Putin at this point. I mean, The only thing he can do, right, is pump oil out of the strategic reserve for political purposes heading into a midterm. Well, people have voted now. 
So I think gas prices are going to head back up. So well, the strategic actually, reserve, yeah. I mean, it's it's at it's an historic out. low. They're yeah. going to have to start filling it back up. Right. Well, right. and speaking so you guys voted. That. Joe Biden, thanks you for your votes. Gas prices are going back up now. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of that, um, there, there's news out of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the other sort of bit of breaking news we wanted to touch on before diving into what we know more about the, the midterms here. What happened? Right. And Biden made a, an interesting comment that felt a little narcissistic. And then I thought about it more. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Is there something to this? So Biden, so Putin announced that there was going to be a broad retreat from Kherson, Kurs- mm-hmm. which would avoid this, this titanic battle uh, that people have been speculating is just, just around the corner and that Russia was likely to eventually lose. He announced he's going to leave, that they're, they're retreating from Kherson. Uh, it was initially met with some skepticism but it does appear to be real. Like areas around there are being liberated uh, regularly and all indications are that this is accurate. Uh, Biden said at his press conference yesterday that intelligence that the United States had indicated that they were in fact going to retreat from Kherson. And he said, I find it interesting that Putin saved this until after the midterms. (laughs) And at first I was like, that's absurd. Then I'm like, well, wait a minute. He did actually announce this we knew it was going to happen, and he held the announcement till after the midterms. What does that say, if it's true, about how Pu- how Putin sees the the war in Ukraine playing into domestic politics and what his interests are in the outcome of our politics? Yeah, I think it's that's a really good question. And Biden, by the way, was in a hell of a mood yesterday. Uh, he was feeling good. <laughs> he was it was early in the great. day too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's like 4 p.m. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty early. I mean, yeah. it's early for him. Well, it's dinner time. Uh, he was he was feeling he was feeling great yesterday. He had early some bird special. Yes, interesting, right? Yeah, he said some some interesting one liners. Um, well, I think we have always known that, especially Putin and uh, his government believes that we are very vulnerable and that our divisions make us vulnerable to sort of outside manipulation. So I don't think that that's not that that's implausible um, actually yeah. at all. Right. Right, he doesn't. He doesn't want to do anything that might that he thinks might make Democrats look good. Yeah. Like. Well, yeah, or, yeah, or it makes Biden look good, or and all this is happening in the context, by the way, of the Washington Post report, which confirmed that there are channels that are trying to urge Ukraine to the negotiating table, mm-hmm. um, and that came out what last week, last Friday. Right. 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 Which would would be nice. There's movement and, to end the war. So let's let's start by talking about the Senate. So. Not much has changed, interestingly, since we left this studio right. well, after midnight on, on Tuesday night. We have some more vote totals in. Uh, we know for sure that Georgia, we could put this put this up, we know for sure that Georgia is headed to a runoff. This will be early December. Last time, it was a, a eight, nine-week sprint marathon. Gosh. Until it, was, it wasn't until, what, January 4th or 5th that the runoff happened. This time, it's early December, so it's just a four-week sprint. Uh, meanwhile, in Nevada and Arizona are still too close to call, but Democrats are pretty confident that they're going to win at least one, maybe both of those, depending on what votes come in 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 Nevada. We can talk about those races in a second, but I'm curious for your take on the effect of, let's say it's not for all the marbles. Let's say by this weekend, we know that Democrats are going to have at least 50 seats in the Senate. Or Republicans, depending on Nevada. And or or let's say Republicans win them both. Right. right. And so Georgia, this Georgia Senate race becomes a nice to have for both parties, but not deciding the mm. balance of power. Which party's turnout operation do you think that that helps the most? 
That's a really good question. I mean, I, I think it does depend because if you're a Democrat, you have the tiebreaker, right, in Kamala Harris. Um, mm-hmm. Depending on how the numbers shake out, that's that's a, obviously a huge advantage. Kamala Harris is yep. not going to vote the way of Republicans. <laughs> uh, It'd be funny if she did. Yeah, <laughs> she just goes totally rogue. So I think that will matter a little bit, but I don't know. I mean, it's just going to be a ton of money no matter what. It's going to be, because you, even for Democrats, they've been frustrated with the margin that they have right now. And if there's an opportunity for them to pick up another seat, well, to keep Warnock in Senate, in the Senate, um, and increase their margin, even by one vote, they'll feel so much more comfortable that it's going to be worth right. the spending. And so do you think that Republicans, after this disappointing night, which is going to lead to a bunch of finger pointing, uh, already is leading to finger pointing, <laughs> you already have uh, Trump out there making fun of Ron DeSanctimonious for getting fewer <laughs> votes in a midterm than he got as president, <laughs> president in a right. presidential year, saying that nobody has ever won 219 seats before. So he's he's going to be stirring the pot for four weeks, which is him stirring the pot for eight weeks in Georgia last time yeah. really hurt turnout yeah. for Republicans. So do you think that Republicans are going to say, you know, we were we thought we were going to have this red wave. Instead, we got embarrassed. Like, I'm not coming out again for Herschel Walker. Or do you think that the stakes for them are so existential that they're like, you know what, it, I don't, I'm, I'm go, I'm, I'll, I'll, walk, I'll walk through fire for Herschel Walker early December? I think that's what we're going to see. The The money is going to be framing it very much as that, that this is existential, and I'm sure the Democrats will follow suit because that margin is really important to them. It's not every day mm-hmm. that you have a president and a Senate. You can get a lot yeah, done Democrats with that. Democrats hate Manchin so much that they would love to be able to make it's him helpful. moot. Yeah, it's, it's a neutralizer. Um, and again, it depends on how the numbers shake out. But yeah, I think there's going to be a ton of money pouring in telling both sides, and in a red state like Georgia, I think that's helpful for Republicans because you have that home state advantage, right, of people that are generally going to be inclined to say, oh, this is existential in that direction. Now, one thing that the conservative sort of commentariat has settled on over the course of the last couple of days, um, the buzzword is chaos. They have said that candidates like Herschel Walker, Mastriano, Michaels, um, voters don't want chaos. They want a sense of normalcy. And Walker is an example of a chaos candidate. Um, and so I would expect that— people really that, want normal? Chaos is so much more interesting. Well, here's what's really interesting. So my old editor, Tim Carney, pulled out a quote that we got one time during a, a uh, editorial board interview at the Washington Examiner with Thomas Massey. And Thomas Massey explained to us, uh, he, he said he went and campaigned with Rand Paul and Ron Paul, he's a fairly libertarian, um, and it wasn't until Trump came along that he realized, you know, he used to think, wow, all of these people just really love limited government. And he said, I realized when Trump came along, they were just looking to support the craziest son of a bitch in the race. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and Carney pulled that one out, and he said, you know, basically— that's what Trump voters want, um, but that's not the entire public, right? right. So, 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 and especially in some of those districts, we're going to talk about Erie County, for instance. Um, you know, you might have people that liked what Trump's chaos was, but nobody else can channel that. Like, there's just no other Donald right. Trump, and it's certainly not going to be Dr. Oz um, right. or Mastriano. Right. And the Fed, don't end the Fed. Just <laughs> make make me laugh yeah. and, and make this party establishment cry, and I'm I'm happy. Pretty much that, yeah. and and like take on the media. Um, yeah. Right? No, absolutely. So anyway, I think that just expect to see that sort of nudge for Walker to to not be such a chaos candidate um, because. 
Well, I, mean, I don't know how you do that. Yes, also how do you do that? I don't know how you Make do that. Hide. He's he's one. He has like the he, like how he did in the primary. Yeah, right. I think that's right. So let's put this next element up. Uh, Wisconsin. This is one of the calls that we that we did have after after Tuesday night. It looked like it was headed in this direction. It did go. The biggest surprise here for pundits, um, myself included, mm-hmm. I, uh, was how close it was. Yeah. This, and I think that. In some ways, Barnes here was a victim of the massive Wisconsin polling misses Mm -hmm. in 2016 and 2020 in that he was able to say, look, I'm up seven points here in these polls. Uh, Party doesn't come in and help him. Hey, guys, I'm up four points here. Party Mm -hmm. doesn't come in and help him. Hey, guys, this is a dead heat. Party doesn't help him. Guys, I'm only down by a couple points here. Party doesn't help him because they keep adding in this extra four or five points that they think the polls are off by. Yeah. Instead, the polls were off in the other direction. Democrats spent something like $72 million in Florida mm-hmm. going after Marco Rubio. Insane. To lose by almost 20 points. Yep. And they left Mandela Barnes hanging out to dry in Wisconsin. Now, you can have criticisms of, the, of, of Barnes as a candidate and the campaign he ran, whatever. He was in, within two points or so. What, what was the within what, one point? It's with ninety nine percent in. We have Ron Johnson at fifty point five percent and Mandela Barnes at forty nine point five. So how do you justify spending seventy million dollars in Florida? You don't and not and it's, Florida is so much more expensive to campaign in than mm-hmm. Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. You're from Wisconsin, right? How, how, <laughs> yeah, we're cheap. <laughs> doesn't, co- doesn't cost anything with a Green Bay market or whatever. <laughs> well, I don't know what they were thinking. I mean, Mandela Barnes obviously is a isn't the ideal candidate in Wisconsin just because he has what you would refer to probably if you're a political consultant as like progressive baggage, baggage. right? Like you, you know, you could they run. They kept showing the abolish ice T-shirt. Yeah, right. that's not helpful, right? Yeah, yeah from a from a, poli- a purely political perspective, it's somebody who would have aligned himself with an AOC running in Wisconsin. And again, Randy Bryce was there, and Randy Bryce ended up sort of falling flat on his face. Um, But there's an argument, Jason Kander likes to make it, that if you run sort of boldly on progressive ideas, it's the Reagan formula. If you run boldly on conservative ideas, basically you can win anywhere because people know you're principled. Like, people know that you believe what you believe, and there's, you know, you're going to bring some populism into it, likely, um, and there's a way to do it. You know, Medicare for all. Can it win in Wisconsin? Absolutely. Um, but all that is to say, uh, this even Wisconsin's polling has been off in a lot of Ron Johnson races, uh, a lot of races in general. So like the Marquette poll that everyone referred to in Wisconsin for a long time as the gold standard of polling. Um, it, it wasn't picking up on a lot of this stuff. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit later. But just like, I don't think that any of these mortem, postmortems that are saying the polling was okay are right. I mean, I, I think, you know, first of all, polls should be better than okay. Uh, and second of all, I think there were some really, really big misses that just shouldn't have happened, still shouldn't have happened. This, though, I think the governor's race shows that this, not so not just the one, one being one point away means it's a winnable race. Mm-hmm. That's what they call within the margin of maneuver. Mm-hmm. Like a couple decisions you make differently can can shift those those numbers of of votes, but also you can look at the statewide gubernatorial race. Tony Evers was reelected. He's currently up by about a hundred thousand votes, fifty-one point two percent to forty-seven point eight percent. And Barnes underperformed uh, Evers. The argument for Barnes was identity po- identity politics based argument that said that Barnes would turn out black voters in Milwaukee, in Milwaukee and also young voters. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in Madison, in, huge college right. town. Yeah. In, instead, 
uh, Milwaukee did not turn out in the way that they predicted it would. Mm -hmm. And Barnes then significantly underperformed Evers in the rural areas of Wisconsin, which you you have to, you're not going to win those as a Democrat, but you have to lose them less bad. And that's what Evers did. Well, and, and maybe this is a good transition over to the House because that's our, our next block. Mm-hmm. Actually, let's, let's talk well, about this. I want to get your take real fast because yeah. you know Arizona really well. <laughs> yeah. I don't actually. I mean, you know Blake Masters. Um, you, you know, we had Blake Masters yes. on, on Rising. Yes. This is somebody whose career yeah. you followed for a long time. Mm-hmm. Do they think they have a shot? Uh, do they have a shot? What's your, what's, what's your sense at this point? I think they do have a shot. I think they have a path. I think they're projecting optimism about that path that's probably disproportionate to what the reality <laughs> is. Um, down by five points. Which is not right abnormal. Right. Um, yeah, I think Carrie Lake probably has a path, but I don't know that Blake Masters does. Uh, and, you know, a good example also, like, thinking about where, yeah, I mean, I don't know. We have a block on the House and the governors mm-hmm. coming up, so I'm trying not to mash them all together. Right. Um, but I, I think you're right that there's, there, there's optimism on their end um, about all of that. And Arizona is such a mess. It's right. just, like, it is such a mess. The, the right there has little faith in uh, the counting. And so basically the, the prayer is just that this doesn't turn into right. another 2020 nightmare at this point. Um, and, and I don't know. And meanwhile, uh, Catherine Cortez Masto is down by 15,000 votes. Uh, but Democrats do think that the votes that are out um, ought to hew her way and that she has a pretty strong chance of holding, holding on. on. It's going to be extremely close um, either way. If you're listening to the podcast, we're going to move right into the house here. If you're watching this uh, somewhere else, you got to go find our next video, which is on the House <laughs> of Representatives. So let's, Or you're a premium <laughs> subscriber and you're just watching all, just the, watching way all the way through. That's right. It's awesome. So uh, let's, let's put up this first element here. So Sean Patrick Maloney, the chair of the DCCC, who fled his district because he felt it was uh, too close. It was like a deep zero uh, race. Jumped further south, closer to New York City uh, for a uh, suburban district that that leaned more heavily Democratic because he thought that that would be easier for him to hold. The problem for him was that it was currently occupied by an incumbent Democrat, Representative Mondaire Jones. Mondaire Jones hemmed and hawed for several days and then decided to leave, ended up running in Manhattan, New York 10, uh, to avoid to avoid a fight with the DCCC chair, a fight that uh, he I'm confident he would have won, but it would have been it would have been bloody, it would have been a mess. Uh, and then, what does the DCCC do for you in the general election after you've be- ended the career of the DCCC chair? So, I will acknowledge that Jones was put in a pretty difficult spot there. But then, for Maloney to lose his own race, right, and then in his state basically cost Democrats the House. We'll, we'll see what the margin may. I mean, the, the, bizarrely, Inside Elections was saying this morning that there's still a chance that Democrats could hold the House. Like, there's a path. They don't think it's likely, but they think there's a, there's a path. But, but let's say that they lose it by a couple of votes. If they do, it was in the House. It was in New York that they lost it uh, in, a, in a number of close races, including... Tom Swosey, uh, who was a Long Island representative, stepping down for a ridiculous run for governor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and very popular, former mayor for 20 years, uh, incumbent Democrat, would have won easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, Democrats lost, uh, lost, lost his seat. Uh, they, they lost, then they lost Maloney's seat. Uh, they lost also in, let me pull some of these up, New York uh, 19, Mark Molinaro won, wins by two points. 
in that in that district, um, uh, Max Rose got completely waxed. Um, Mike Lawler beats Sean Patrick Maloney by two points. Um, who else? We got uh, Brandon Williams, uh, Republican, beats Francis Canole in New York 22 by just 4,000 votes. Uh, it's not called yet, but Brandon Williams is up. Um, Pat Ryan, who was who ran on a kind of uh, anti-corporate populist slash abortion strategy. Mm-hmm. We, he won that special election that we talked about. He wins. Like, mm-hmm. well, he, it's it's not called yet, but he's up um, by 2,000 votes at this point. And then um, Elise Stefanik uh, held, held on quite quite easily. So, th- but those four or five losses right there w- will likely end up being. The difference. Well, and here's another one, um, and and I want to get into that actually because oh, let's, let's camp Island. out I didn't on New York. Mention the whole just a sweep second. in Long Island. Yeah. Okay. So if we camp out on New York, it's a really interesting question where Lee Zeldin didn't win, and the headline: If Lee Zeldin had won, although he did tighten the margin as the the votes were coming in, it did end up being sort of for a Republican. He made a really good showing, just like Drazen in Oregon. Um, the headline: If Lee Zeldin had won, would have basically been like red wave, because that's like insane. Um, But down ballot, what we were seeing is huge inroads for New York Republicans. And I saw a couple people tweeting. He's only lost by five, it looks like. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's that's a, a loss for the polling industry. <laughs> Some people had them up. Um, mm-hmm. But all that is to say, um, Zeldin, th- that's the headline, right? Like, But down ballot, he made inroads. He did really well um, in parts of New York. He outperformed like historic Republican patterns in different parts of New York. Um, and all of those races that you just mentioned were similar, where you saw Republicans doing surprisingly well. And that's a real problem, both, I don't know how durable that is in Oregon. I imagine in New York, um, depending on how things go in New York in general, what the the Hochul term looks like, um, that could be a serious sort of problem for Democrats in the future. The other race that I wanted to talk about actually is Wisconsin. If we Mm -hmm. we go back to Wisconsin here, Wisconsin's third. So that's Ron Kine's district for a long time. Um, and here I'm quoting uh, J.R. Ross, who is the editor of WisconsinPolitics.com. He, he put up a tweet showing that the Republican in Wisconsin's third district, that's a rural district on the western side of the state, sort of southwestern into the north. Um, if this margin holds, he wrote, the complaints I heard from Wisconsin Dems about the D-trip not putting enough in this race will be justified. And the decision by House Majority PAC to kill $1.8 million in ads for FAF for Congress over the final two weeks will be justifiably scrutinized. So the Democrat is down, in that tweet at least, with 64% of the votes counted by the AP's estimate. He's down about three points mm-hmm. uh, to Derek Van Orden, the Republican. Now, that's really interesting. Kind won that district in 2018 easily. I think he had like 60% of the yeah, vote. One of those guys that everybody likes him, Republicans vote for him. Totally. He can have the seat as long as he wants kind of thing. Yeah. Like yeah. Pocan. Yeah, totally. Uh, it looks like Van Orden is in that margin. Um, he's winning by almost exactly the margin that he lost to Kind mm-hmm. back in 2020. So he flipped that. Right. And this is, again, where you see, we talked about the Senate in the last block, you see a razor-thin margin for Ron Johnson and Mandela Barnes, too. So Democrats are, Wisconsin, New York, we're talking about relatively rural areas um, in both places where there was you know, problems for Democrats. So there was you know, probably problems that they could have fixed if they saw coming. I don't know. Is that would that be your assessment of uh, yes, New York I as well? Th- I I think that that FAF here was also a victim 
of the skepticism around the polling. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That the Dem- Democratic bosses who either run the super PAC, House Majority PAC, that's the Detroit C's super PAC, or who run kind of the, the, the Senate campaign spending, looked at the races, and I'm sure Pfaff was screaming at them. This is a dead heat. We are statistically tied with Van Orden here. Mm-hmm. They'd be like, yeah, you're statistically tied, but Wisconsin polls are wrong. So you're actually down by five or six or seven points. Yes. Since Biden was polling, what, up, what, up 17? Or was that Hillary that was polling up 17? <laughs> like, they, they missed it so badly that now they're, they're just going with their guts, and their guts have no idea well, and the conventional, what, what's going on in Wisconsin. And the conventional wisdom is that they're under-polling Republicans. Right. Um, and that, it turned out they were under-polling Demo- in, in certain places, yeah. yeah. Um, it's it's very interesting that the conventional wisdom in the polling industry was we are having a really hard time tapping into these covert Trump supporters. I'm getting into this in, in my monologue, but basically that that conventional wisdom was not right. And I, I think especially when you don't have Donald Trump on the ballot, it's not right. But the fact that so many political professionals, and you can see this in the D-trip numbers, um, and you can see this with where Republicans started spending money, people's internal polls even, we're not even talking about the, the media stuff, clearly nobody had any idea what the hell was happening in a lot of these races. They just didn't know. Uh, one, one side point here. So Iowa was completely swept by uh, Republicans, all, all four seats. Mm-hmm. Uh, Republican, uh, Republicans dominated in Florida as well. We talked, dominated. About, talked about this before that a, a lot of our policy has been twisted by the fact that Iowa uh, is a swing state where the presidential races start and Florida is a swing state where the presidential races end. Like that's how... Like, you know, there's that saying that the races begin in Iowa, end in Florida. Mm -hmm. Not true anymore. Mm -hmm. So somebody was making the point, uh, it was Eric Sterling of Just Foreign Foreign Policy. He's like, okay, you know what? Enough with the Cuban embargo now. (laughs) I saw saw you. Like, we've been doing this. We've been making the Cuban people suffer uh, for 50 years so that we have a chance of winning in Florida, which is so cynical and awful. Like, that. Uh, that people are eating, uh, you know, people that don't, people are eating beans uh, so that some consultant has a chance of like, you know, narrowing the margins in Miami-Dade County. Uh, So scrap that. Now make the policy on its merits, not just for one community in in South Florida. Secondly, in Iowa, our stupid ethanol policy has been (laughs) just completely driven by the fact that Iowa's a swing state and the Iowa caucus. Democrats are uh, it looks like they're scrapping the Iowa caucuses. It's no longer a, a competitive state. Enough with the ethanol subsidies. Done. Figure something else out. What Iowa. about the sugar subsidies in Florida? Yes. Done. <laughs> done. Yeah. Like how many how many cases of diabetes do we have mm-hmm. in this country of the so sugar that lie. Democrats and and Republicans can jockey for the vote mm-hmm. in Florida? You know, I sorry for Democrats that they're not competitive in Florida anymore, but just write it off. And end the sugar subsidies, end the ethanol subsidies, end the Cuban embargo. Done. Okay. <laughs> make, make the world a better place. I disagree, obviously, with your take on— I don't disagree with the ethanol and I sugar at all. keep subsidizing it, and you can send the corn and the sugar over to Cuba. I disagree with both the politics and the principle of your take on the embargo, but that we can talk about that later. <laughs> um, uh, an issue you know very well, though, but I think— there's a really good point there, which is how does how does this shake up American politics, period? Like if you have Republicans suddenly being competitive in places like Florida and Democrats or in places like Oregon and Democrats not being competitive 
in places like Florida, that changes policy. Like that has a huge, especially Florida, which is a highly populous state that does have a lot of outsized influence because it's sort of generally been seen as purple. But the margins that came in this week um, are not indicative of a purple state at all. Um, and, and maybe there's still places Democrats can be competitive. Maybe with the right candidate, they can be competitive. I, I don't know. I mean, remember how close that was with Gillum? Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a very, very close if, race. If not for that stupid scandal where like some undercover FBI agent gave his brother like Hamilton tickets, <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. Gillum was like a front runner for the presidency. Instead, he was like arrested. Yeah. Uh, and DeSantis is a front runner for the presidency. Oh, we're, since we're still in the, technically in the House block, some news here. I asked Tom Suozzi, you thinking about running for your old seat in 2024? People are missing you already. He says, ha. Huh. You said people are missing yes. you already. <laughs> so not a no. Not a no. Not a no. Ha. Huh. Uh, I, th- I think Democrats, even progressives, would be like, you know what? Uh, that, that guy really annoyed us a lot um, by being part of the no label, the centrist stuff. But he won. Mm-hmm. And it, they would rather have a Democrat who annoys them than a Republican who's just going to vote constantly against them. I think one big storyline that may be emerging, and you were touching on this from Tuesday's results, is that the country is is starting to almost balkanize and that people are starting, like Florida's a good example, to concentrate in different parts of the country. Um, and that's going to be, that's going to have a difference, not just in politics where people compete, but then downstream of that in policy um, and downstream of that sort of inner interactions with each other. And obviously, you know, since bowling alone and, and coming apart, people have written about this. But when it actually starts happening with physical moving, um, where people are sort of actually also voting with their feet and not just saying, well, we're in Oregon, it happens, um, or we're in New York, whatever it is. Uh, but when people are saying, listen, we're getting out of the city, um, or we're getting out of Portland, we're getting out of Manhattan, um, you're going to yeah. start, the, our politics are really going to change. And so the DCCC chair losing in a pretty good year for House Democrats. Awfully funny. Mm. Might not be the funniest to compete for the funniest races. One, did you know Sarah Palin was running again? I did. All right, so, and then we're going to get to Laura Because you can, you can do writing yeah. campaigns pretty successfully in Alaska. You can. Murkowski. If, if Murkowski can win, I think weren't they handing out pencils that said Murkowski on them? Mm-hmm. Uh, so to run through these really quickly. So Mary uh, Peltola, the Democrat who uh, said she was the fish candidate, <laughs> um, which is important in Alaska. Everything's dying up there. Uh, she's cer- currently sitting at 47%. Sarah Palin with 27%. Nick Begich with 24%. Once all the ballots are counted, their ranked choice, that's with 80% in. Once all the ballots are counted, their ranked choice kicks in. Right. And so if Mary Peltola doesn't get over 50%, then the second place choices for uh, Nick Begich play in. And so if every single Nick Baggage voter chose Sarah Palin as their second choice, she would win 53-47. But we know that that's not going to happen. Some of them are going to pick Peltola, a small margin, because they just hate Sarah Palin uh, for all, all the different reasons that people don't like Sarah Palin. I mean, if you don't really live in Alaska, it's going to be very hard to win in Alaska. Right. Yes. So this is it, it, Dr. Oz. As Dr. Oz learned in Pennsylvania. Uh, and he was pretty close. She's not even close. Uh, and, but a lot of uh, the baggage voters are also going to just leave it, leave it blank. Mm. So they're like, look, I, I like baggage. Who's my second choice? I don't like either of them. And so those get pulled out. So Peltola's probably got that. That's funny. Uh, Colorado, uh, Lauren Boebert. She's currently down 
by, oh, I can't do this math, 156,746 votes for the Democrat Adam Frisch, 156,682 for Lauren Boebert with more than 95% counted. So this is actually still up in the air. Um, It sounds like, and and we were laughing about this last night on Twitter, it sounds like Aspen has been fully counted. Um, Aspen, obviously, uh, not Lauren Boebert country. (laughs) And I'll say this for Lauren Boebert. you know, at least she had the right enemies. <laughs> Doesn't mean you're not a jerk, but she had the right enemies there. Like if you're lo- if you're losing Aspen nine to one, that's kind of or eight to two or whatever it was. That yeah. says something. Yeah, it feels like it. Fe- it feels like we're in a weird place if the left is the super rich people in Aspen. Well, and the left are also leveling uh, sexist attacks on her, like saying that it's good news for OnlyFans, as Kurt Bardella did on MSNBC last night. All, although uh, the, the loudest one on this front has been uh, MAGA man Lenny Dykstra, my, my <laughs> hero when I was a kid. Uh, <laughs> uh, Nails, the old Mets and Phillies player, took the, took the opportunity to hit on her um, on, t- on Twitter. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, what's, it's turning out to be is maybe that Lauren Boebert country is not even Lauren Boebert country because what you have here is a fairly centrist Democrat being extremely competitive. Laura Boebert might be able to make up the math here. It's not impossible. But when you have someone coming in and and saying basically like this is there's too many distractions. You're not helping the people of the district. It's more about you than it is about the district. Um, That's a pretty clear sign. And and Republicans also lost an upset in this Northeast uh, Colorado District 8 like another, I mean, it's on the other other side of the state, but you know, also a rural area. Area, but that has like that's forty percent Hispanic. It was, it was two Hispanic can. And, and uh, Polis was more comfortable than people expected either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and the uh, psychedelics hung on. That's right. So there's going to be therapeutic psychedelic centers hey, look in at Colorado that, that are going to be building up. As we talk about governors, yeah, there you go. So Democrat Laura Kelly wins re-election in the Kansas governor's race, NBC News projects. One thing I'd like to add to that also, just while we're talking about the sort of Kansas, um, there was a lot of a lot of speculation that Kevin Stitt was going to lose the governorship in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of the spots where polling was just, most of this was, most of the bad polls were erring on the side of um, undercounting Democratic votes. This poll, for some, these polls in, in Oklahoma were awful. They were so bad. Kevin Stitt was reelected governor of Oklahoma, a red state, very comfortable. But actually, there were several polls that had Hoffmeister, this is the last week of October, up by three, up by one, up by four throughout <laughs> October. And Stitt was handily reelected, uh, probably like, a, I, mean, pro- I mean, it might even be a double digit margin. At least it was when it I was looking. Yeah, 55-42 here. 56, yeah, 42. that's with 99% in double yeah. digits. Well, uh, we were making fun of those polls here. Right. Well, like, but sometimes you can be like, look, come on. Get out of here with this. You can, but Oklahoma Republicans were nervous, um, but legitimately nervous yeah. about that. And uh, obviously, if we put C2 up on the screen, we're just sort of taking a tour around uh, the different governorships in the country. Gretchen Whitmer, another one where there were polls. And they swept the legislature, too. There you go. Yeah. Uh, another one. And they had an abortion referendum on the mm-hmm. ballot. So this the narrative, um, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, but the, the narrative that 
uh, it was this clear-cut sort of dichotomy between abortion and the economy. Um, in a midterm, when you need turnout, turnout for abortion clearly helped mm-hmm. Whitmer, and that's clearly what is not being picked up on by the pollsters. Right. right? That's clearly what was being missed, that these things were going to be, um, were going to buoy Democrats in ways that they just weren't picking up on. And the most difficult thing for pollsters to pick up is youth turnout mm-hmm. they, because they just have such a hard time gauging whether or not a young person who's telling them they're going to turn out is going to vote, turn out. Partly, it's not, it's not just gener- generational prejudice. It's that there's not as much of a history. If somebody's 50 years old, and you, then you can look back in their voting history and tell how many times they've come out. They're like, yeah, oh, I'm totally going to vote. And you check their voting record. They haven't voted in 10 years. You're like, well, I'm not so sure they're going to vote. Well, they also might pick up a landline. Right. And so, right. And right. It's harder to reach them. And also, if, it, if they're a 20-year-old and they haven't voted before and they're telling you, I'm definitely going to vote, as a pollster, now you have to make the decision. Mm-hmm. Are they telling you the truth? Are they actually going to vote? Because you don't have a voting history that you can go back and look at. And I'll take a quick victory lap. Uh, because if you remember uh, Tuesday night on Megyn Kelly, mm-hmm. um, she and Larry Elder uh, were like laughing at the idea that there might be a surge in, in youth voter turnout and that Democrats always bank on these young people turning out and then the young people never show up. They showed up in 2018 and that really made the difference. And that was, that was anti-Trump and that was gun violence, if you remember. The mm-hmm. par- that was the surge of the, the, the post-Parkland movement. Uh, that, they, they doubled their share in t- 2018. They doubled their share of the electorate. Nobody had ever seen an explosion like that, and they're overwhelmingly Democratic. And so they came out to get, again, we, we still don't exactly know in what numbers, but they came out in, in huge numbers. And I think there are several things that you can draw from that. Uh, and and I, one is that you got to stop thinking about people just as boxes. Yes, I think this vindicates Biden's student loan yeah. policy. I think clearly, like, done. Like, any, anybody who thought that that was going to backfire on Democrats uh, missed that. But that's not all students are. I think the climate bill that they passed, you know, the IRA, the biggest climate spending in history, I think that mattered. Mm. Like, I think that brought out uh, some young people, got some young people enthusiastic, showed them there's a purpose in getting involved, but also, and maybe most importantly, abortion. Because for some reason, we, we do this thing where we think, well, you have women over here, and then you have young people over here. <laughs> none of the young people are women. <laughs> none of, none of the, there's, uh, or uh, are the, the boyfriends of women. Mm. And or, or young people who care, or young boys, young men who care about Dave Portnoy, who said um, he was not voting Republican. This is like after to, to people under thirty, who just or forty, who have just grown up, like abortion is a fundamental right in the Constitution. To all of a sudden be told it's not, and they're like, no. And so, so yes, certainly women of all ages are offended at having that uh, right stripped away. But I think. People under forty, men and women, um, I think were particularly driven by that. What's how are Republicans thinking through the turnout model uh, in relation to abortion policy? I think, and I, I'm sort of trying to pick a lot of this apart in my monologue. Um, I, I do think that there was this idea, and understandably so, that the economy was in a place where. People would be voting or they would want to hear more from candidates about their sort of um, 
they, their, their, their bank accounts. Like, what's happening to my bank account? What is happening to my portfolio? What is happening to just my ability to feed my families, uh, to feed my family and to do X, Y, and Z? And, and that would be sort of separate, that that would mm-hmm. be, or, or it would be overwhelming, not separate, right. but that those interests would overwhelm interests mm-hmm. in talking about anything else, like nothing else. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I think there were some voters like that probably, but it, you have to then factor in what that's going to do, for instance, to the youth vote, which right. is historically, and this is like, Megan had a good point when she was talking, like historically, oh, yeah. it's low. Um, and historically, especially in a bad economy under an unpopular incumbent president, you would not expect young people to turn out high enough uh, in ways that would be super helpful for Democrats. And I don't think uh, that sort of the Dobbs aftermath was factored in, and especially, especially, especially in states where there was an abortion referendum um, on the table. That, I think, in Michigan is absolutely key, um, completely crucial and, you know, young voters, are, that's not people who have kids in the schools and would be upset with Gretchen Whitmer over mm-hmm. that, um, and over COVID lockdowns, which was a huge issue in the race between Whitmer and Dixon. So it wasn't picking up on what Democrats were doing. And we were very clear here that dismissing the focus on abortion was not, it, like, obviously Democrats know this is about turnout. Um, I don't think that they handled it spectacularly well. I don't think a lot of Republicans handled it spectacularly well. But... Uh, midterm elections, yeah, you're going to hear about democracy, democracy, and you're going to hear about uh, abortion when Democrats are trying to uh, just just these marginal wins. That's what it is. I mean, there are all these kinds of things that tip the balance and make the difference. And that's one of them, obviously. The, the danger for Democrats feeling so good coming out of this would be that they ignore some of the routes that they took in a lot of other places like New York. Like, like Iowa, for instance, parts of parts of New York. Uh, where, you know, the, the the abortion message worked in places like New Hampshire, places like Michigan here like, that have a slightly higher college-educated population. If, if they're going to be competitive nationally, they're going to have to reach workers to, like, where they are. And so one of the good signs coming out of Michigan is that Democrats are saying now that the first thing they're going to do is take on right to work. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Betsy DeVos kind of, uh, you know, hard, hard right Michigan wing there has has pushed as many kind of pro-corporate anti-worker policies as they could get through with their... I mean, a lot of workers like, support right to work. Well, we'll see. So that, that that's a fun fight to have. Some, some work, it is a fun yeah, fight to have. Yeah. Some, some workers uh, are anti-union, no doubt about it. Or at um, least not, not even anti-union, but just anti not being forced into a union. Right. So, so Democrats are going to uh, go at right to work. Um, and and we'll, we'll see how, we'll see how that that pans out because that's actually an interesting fault line for the the populist left and right. It's like it's a like where like the populist right is for workers, but they're still kind of sorting through exactly where they are on unions. Yeah, it's an interesting fight. I don't agree necessarily that it's an interesting fault line because of sort of what I was just saying. Like a lot of so American Compass, it's Orrin Cass's group that does a lot of pro worker issues from the right perspective. They they support a different sort of formation, a more European formation about what organization, what, what organizing should look like uh, for American workers. And I don't imagine that they would be against right to work. Um, and I, I mean, I don't know. I think it's not a great 
fight to pick for the for the left, actually, because I think it exposes a lot of the cracks in the sort of foundation and a lot of the conversations that uh, people don't want to have about the faults um, in big labor. Uh, and it, it always, like, actually, I'm just saying, like, from a political perspective. I don't know that it's the most like expedient uh, fight to pick. Yeah, that that I disagree with. Without uh, without organized labor, without workers collectively demanding fights through the political uh, process, I think you you don't have a left that is anything other than uh, kind of you know culture culture war, reverse culture war. So if if Democrats want are are going to fight in the workplace uh, and and appeal to workers' material interests, I think that's the, that's the best chance that the party has. Uh, because other, otherwise, it's just a faculty lounge party, and and if and if that becomes the debate between the the right and the left, do you want the the, the freedom to not have to join a union in your workplace, which might then dis, you know dissolve your union? Because like the, it's it's not as if the right right to so in in states where right to work has been implemented, you see union density collapse. Absolutely, yeah. and so it's not as if. You still have the union protections, but uh, you have the individual freedom to not join a union. Mm-hmm. You don't end up having the, ch- the choice to join a union or not because you've destroyed the unions. Yeah. And so that, that's why, and I think that's why in places where right to work has been implemented, uh, it, it might be easier to reverse. Because it sounds nice to say to somebody, like, look, we're totally for a union, but... You don't have to be in it if you work for this company, if you don't want to, but you can still have the benefits. So you get the, you get the extra health care, you get the pension, you get the, an, get the annual raises, mm-hmm. but you also don't have to pay dues. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of workers are like, I'll take that deal. Mm-hmm. Great. Mm-hmm. You know, gas prices are going up. I'll take an extra $100, $150 in my paycheck. And then a couple years later, the union's gone. And now you don't have a choice anymore to get that health care, to get that pension, to get that rate, to get that annual raise because there is no union. So I think that we'll see, but I, but I think it's a, it's a fight worth having. That's, so you, like Michigan as a test case in what happens, yeah. like a, as a sort of ex- example of what you lose when you pass right to work, you're saying like it's a, that only works out in the favor of Democrats. And it's interesting because I think back to the right to work fight in, in Michigan, what was that, like almost 10 years ago? Mm-hmm. Um, that do, that really did expose, like, I mean, when you're going out and talking to workers who are saying, I absolutely believe in, in right to work because I have problem X, Y, and Z with my union, um, that's, that is powerful mm-hmm. uh, and, and not in the, the direction. Right, and unions need, need a check and— you know, there are, there are certainly corrupt unions. And, and that was before like, unions were, like, super woke, too, by the way. Are they that woke in, in nationally, Michigan? Nationally, they definitely are. And so, like, the national organizations that the chapters are responsive to, I guarantee you a lot of Michigan workers have problems with. But that doesn't mean that they see that as outweighing right. different interests. The gra- grass is always greener. Uh, and so we'll see. See, that's actually, yeah. that's a really interesting point. The grass is always greener. Um, and I, I think you've persuaded me that this is an interesting. All right, excellent. An interesting fight. There we go. <laughs> all right, next, Republicans are all jockeying for blame and for power here. That's right. right? Let's put let's put D1 up here. Um, <laughs> Scalise will not challenge McCarthy. This is per Jake Sherman over at Punchbowl, um, according to a Scalise aide who told Jake that. The message that's going out from the Scalise camp, Scalise is running for majority leader, full 
stop. Um, Jim Jordan said the same thing yesterday as well, although he was pretty clear about that to me just about a month ago. Um, And we also have D2. This is from Ben Shapiro. Um, We can throw that up on the screen. Um, Okay, so this is... Actually, this would be funny if it was from Ben Shapiro. (laughs) Yeah, this is clearly from Trump. Um, I don't know if if Ben tweeted it or something. I have an exciting announcement that I can't wait to share with you on November 15th. I'm going to announce something huge at Mar-a-Lago, and I want you to be there. He means me. He means you, Ryan Grimm. He wants you to be there. Um, So, but make sure to contribute your $5 so you can get into Mar-a-Lago. I'm sure this lottery will be on the up and up, and whoever wins (laughs) will actually be invited to Mar-a-Lago. No questions. It's like Willy Wonka, like the golden ticket. Yeah. Recently, Trump was offering an 1,100% match uh, for donations down the stretch. Mm -hmm. I was like, there's no way anybody can ever top an 1,100% match. I can't even do it. I give $5 and it magically turns into $5,500. How can I not do this? And then a couple days later, they came out with a 1,700% match. Mm-hmm. Wow. 17. I mean, that's such a great deal. It's all. You, like, how could you not yeah, it's, it's take all, Trump up on that? It's just Steve Mnuchin. Yeah. He's just out there. Just printing. <laughs> multiplying. He's yeah. just, he, he stole all that money from the mint. He stole the, gonna, the mint. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's how he's going to multiply your money. That's genius. Little known. Little yeah. known fact. Uh, so... The Kayleigh McEnany actually said on Fox News yesterday that if she were Donald Trump, because of the Georgia runoff, she would not hold that announcement. Um, the the announcement not, that not on have, the fifteenth, not, not make the announcement, not make the announcement. It's widely expected, of course, um, that Donald Trump is Donald Trump's big Mar-a-Lago announcement that he announced um, at his rally. What was that Monday night? Is going to be his announcement that he's running for president. He is obviously running for president unless something dramatic changes. The man is running for president. Um, but because Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump have been publicly sort of at somewhat of loggerheads, DeSantis hasn't really exchanged any fire with him. Um, Trump has put up on Truth Social uh, some mockery of DeSantis, as Ryan mentioned earlier in the show, saying that he got more votes than DeSantis did in the midterm. Um, but of course, when you're running in a presidential year, you're always going to get more votes than somebody running in a midterm year for the most part because turnout is just that much higher. So Trump has been ribbing DeSantis. He called him DeSanctimonious the last couple of weeks. And the sort of internal chatter on the right at the moment is that Donald Trump, uh, his candidates fared very poorly this week. His endorsements didn't seem to carry the weight and the punch that a lot of people wanted them to. Thus, there, there needs to be some introspection and some time about what's to think about what's best for the party before he makes that announcement that DeSantis is kind of waiting in the wings. This guy puts up double-digit margins, not margins, not just in general, but in freaking Miami-Dade County. Uh, just crazy stuff for Republicans in Florida. And again, like Florida is changing quickly. Um, that's that's pulling a lot of people who either weren't voting or were straight up voting Democrat in Florida to the Republican side. So. That seems to be the dilemma uh, facing Republicans right now. It's it's all Trump. And I have a lot of thoughts on that. So before I keep just <laughs> blubbering on, Ryan, what are your thoughts? I think Democrats, uh, rightly or wrongly, are desperately hoping that he follows through with his announcement. Because <laughs> also, Democrats are such short-term, everybody in politics is short-term thinkers. So they're like, if he announces mid-November, like that really juices our turnout mm-hmm. uh, for for the Herschel Walker, uh, Raphael Warnock, or December 4th or 5th uh, election, whenever that is. Uh, what does that do for 
Herschel Walker turnout? Could you like, will Trump go all in to try to, will he be rallying constantly in Georgia for two weeks? And will DeSantis? Um, That's the question because again, look at at how popular uh, Ron DeSantis is Mm -hmm. Uh, in Florida, right? Right, right under the border there yeah. in Georgia, uh, he's very close. And again, putting at double-digit double margins. And we talked about the sort of Reagan model or the the populist, the Jason Kander model, is that if you are bold and you pass these policies, you can actually sort of attract voters to you who don't necessarily love the Republican Party or regularly vote Republican or regularly vote Democrat because they say that guy believes in something and he's doing something about it. Um, and I like that. Um, I like that things are actually changing. I like that, you know, somebody actually is doing what they say they're going to do. Um, and that's this been a, a sort of part of Ron DeSantis's success. And so it's very likely that people are going to want him to campaign for Herschel Walker. Are they going to want Donald Trump to campaign for Herschel Walker in a state that Brian Kemp won easily? And Herschel Walker is going to a runoff, right? Like that is a huge red flag to Trump world. Um, if, if you have Brian Kemp, a guy that Trump did endorse, Sager picked this up. I think he endorsed him at his rally on Monday. Uh, as it seemed pretty clear that Brian Kemp was going to win, Donald Trump was like, I give him my full endorsement um, <laughs> and something like that. But Brian Kemp won easily. In Georgia. And Kemp and Trump have had a horrible relationship over what happened in 2020. Mm-hmm. So right. what's best? What's best for Herschel? I mean, but Herschel's, uh, Herschel obviously loves Trump, right? Like Loves Trump. Herschel, a lot of Herschel voters love Trump. I mean, Donald Trump, this is where for all of the DeSantis people who I think risk sort of um, congealing into a very fervored, um, base. And like, I understand why people like DeSantis on the right. Don't get me wrong. Um, but it's sort of, they have to be careful not to go into like full never Trump mode. Um, because that guy is attracting his rally in Ohio the other night. I mean, how many times has he been to Ohio DeSantis. and Pennsylvania? Trump. Oh, Trump and he sorry. still draws these huge crowds. That is not normal for any Republican. <laughs> like, there mm-hmm. is a lot of love for Donald Trump in the Republican base still, but there's also a lot of polarization in the Republican base. Um, and you can see that, I think, in the Kemp and Walker numbers. So what do you do? Uh, so thoughts on Scalise and Jordan? I you, think, what's your read? I think the Freedom Caucus is uh, going to flex its muscles. And if I were them, I would tell them to do the same thing um, if they want to have a lot of power in the next Congress. Kevin McCarthy has had a lot of really warm relationships with people in the Freedom Caucus. He especially has a very warm relationship with Jim Jordan. He cultivated that relationship intentionally. Uh, after, who's he going to back? Who's Jordan going to back? Uh, McCarthy. Who in, who, in, in the majority leader race. Oh, I'm sure Scalise. I, I think it'll be. I mean, I don't know. He has a close relationship with Jim Banks, um, and I think Banks is jockeying for the whip position. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know, but I do think the Freedom Caucus is going to uh, do something, and I don't think mm-hmm. it's going to be a serious— We're going to get a Freedom Caucus we'll try. tomorrow. We'll try. Um, I th- if you're I th- watching, you're in the Freedom Caucus. Come on the show. Yeah, you're We'd love to tomorrow. have you. Uh, we'd love to talk to you um, because Kevin McCarthy is you know, not— 
seen as somebody, he's, he's certainly not like a kindred spirit with the Freedom Caucus, mm-hmm. but for somebody who's not a kindred spirit with the Freedom Caucus has a, a shockingly good relationship with them, and that was intentional and strategic on his part. So I think it's possible they throw someone up uh, to run against him. Obviously, it's not going to be Jim Jordan, but that something happens um, that pushes him to do something. I mean, there are a lot of procedural changes that actually, like like really procedural changes that um, folks like Rachel Bovard think need to be done, and Freedom Caucus members think need to be done. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, you know, we won't see anything that'll just, everyone will fall in line. A Freedom Caucus source told me before the election that the idea that uh, the Freedom Caucus is going to support McCarthy and it's quote, done and dusted is ridiculous. So uh, I think that uh, increases in likelihood now that the, the red tidal wave didn't materialize. Biden yesterday, uh, feeling his oats, feeling really good, um, doing a bunch of, uh, I, I told you so here. Yeah. Um, the, the big question I think coming out of here, and as you can see this, um, does this mean that Biden uh, is the presumptive nominee for 2024? And I think the obvious answer to that is yes. Yep. The question then is how party insiders feel about that, and then also how the party base feels about that. And what mechanisms they have to express those feelings mm-hmm. over the next couple of years. So uh, from, from a Republican perspective, from the right, uh, how happy are they that, they that they might be running against Joe Biden? Or are they like starting to doubt themselves and their, and their political gut, thinking like, wait, I, th- I thought Brandon was going to be a pushover. And we couldn't even like it's Thursday and we don't even have the house locked down yet. I think they are going to be questioning. <clears throat> I think they're going to be questioning that for sure, whether or not their attacks on Biden and trying to tie certain candidates to Biden um, and the sort of failed Biden agenda worked because Biden, uh, a lot of voters can see, and we talked about this, uh, the student loan example, for instance, I think it, I actually think that that hurts Democrats when it's front and center. But I think for a lot of voters, that was not front and right, center. Yeah, but for young voters, it sure as like, hell boom, was. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So um, I don't think it's like super clear cut. But I do think that, you know, Biden was strategic and the administration was strategic. I probably shouldn't say Biden uh, himself because I don't know how much of that is uh, his team being really strategic and saying, this is what we're going to do, X, Y, and Z. Um, and that stuff turns out, like, voters like people who do stuff. And I understand that the inflation Reduction Act and a lot of the big spending. Like personally, I think that's absolutely contributing to inflation. I think the poor handling of the war is contributing to inflation, and I think this this hostility um, to American energy has. Mm-hmm. It caused inflation. Um, but Republicans obviously did not make that case clearly enough in certain places like Arizona. I mean, just if you can't make that case with an unpopular incumbent president and a fairly bad economy in Arizona to the extent mm-hmm. where it's a, a clear cut sort of, if you can't do that, you have to start asking questions. Yeah. And if the inflation numbers today mean that the tightening begins to end from the Fed, the possibility of a recession in 23, 24, goes way down. Mm-hmm. That's the Republicans' best chance. You know, going up, up against Biden in the middle of a recession, it'll be almost impossible for Biden to win that. But uh, if, if, if the war in Ukraine ends, which hopefully it ends by then, Russia retreating from Kherson su- you know, suggests that there is some type of end in sight maybe after, if, if Europe makes it through the winter, and Ukraine survives through the winter, Russia keeps, um, their, their position keeps disintegrating, uh, you could you could see how Putin might want some to, 
type of negotiated solution that he's that still allows him to, I bet he'll want to keep fighting in the in the Donbass so that he can tell the population that they didn't lose the war. Because mm. you have there, there's there's been some interesting analysis around Putin's thinking here. He can't say that they lost. Mm-hmm. Just like the way that the United States never wants to to lose. Like we declare victory and we leave. Like, so he needs to find a way to declare victory and leave. One way would be that he'll keep propping up some insurgency and just and just keep throwing bodies. Like it's, it's the most cynical, diabolical thing. Uh, but I, I could see an end to that, which means the economy globally, you know, could could be in a smoother situation over the next couple of years. Um, but I think what 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 Biden is so excited about, he considers himself lunch pail Joe, middle class Joe. Amtrak. So let's throw throw up this next. Element from, really, a cellage from, from more perfect union. <laughs> um, a Dem- Democrats and the working class. So, okay, start start with this. They make the point: working people's issues are winning issues. Nebraska raised the minimum wage. D.C. ended the tipped wage. Um, Arizona cracked down on medical debt. Illinois protected workers' rights. Uh, South Dakota expanded Medicaid. Missouri, Maryland legalized weed. Vermont, California, Michigan, Kentucky all all protected abortion. They also they all more perfect union also pulled out some of the exit polling data. Fifty two percent of households, and this this might surprise people. Fifty two percent of households with income under fifty thousand dollars supported Democrats. The bottom fifty percent of earners have seen the biggest increase in real incomes since twenty twenty one, plus ten point five percent. And so, while inflation has eaten away at a lot of people's wages, the people at the bottom, bottom fifty percent, have legitimately seen for the first time uh, an actual real wages um, going up. So then, they, they they added. Meanwhile, households making fifty to a hundred thousand dollars were the most likely to vote Republican, that kind of lumpen proletariat. Uh, well, the, the middle forty percent of earners have seen their real income stagnate. So those those people, materially, have have been hurt the most by inflation and haven't. Um, they, they spend more, so that actually means that they're hurt more by inflation. When you spend less, you know, just basic math, it's going to hurt less. Um, so th- those folks uh, ended up voting, you know, strongest Republican. I saw the more perfect union tweet, and that's it's uh, looking at results from two exit polls. It looks like it's from the Washington Post, not the polls, but the uh, mashup of the polls. And I actually don't see this as great news uh, for Democrats because what you have, first of all, that fifty thousand to a hundred thousand demographic, where you have fifty-two percent of them voting Republican and only forty-five percent of them voting Democrat, if the exit poll is to be believed, if you're a household and you have multiple kids making fifty thousand dollars to a hundred thousand dollars depending on where you live, um, that's not a lot of money. Yeah, those obviously. are working class people too. Yeah, so uh, very, straight. very much. Basically, and, the working class is split. Right. And if you go down to the second poll um, from AP VoteCast, mm-hmm. that's in the More Perfect Union tweet, they say household income under $50,000, 48% Dem to 47% Republican, well within the margin of error. And also exit polls are tough anyway. Exit polls right. are super tough. Right. So let alone when you have a divide 48-47. Um, and again, Republicans in the AP uh, exit poll, 51% for that 50 to 100,000 uh, demographic and 45% for Dems, which is almost exactly what the network exit poll showed as well. Um, so you're right. It shows that the working class is split. Um, and I think that's really I don't know. I mean, historical trends I'd love to see, but that's for Republicans. That means to, that needs to be a, a wake up call that you need to have a clear message 
um, on the economy. That's not just Joe Biden sucks, and that's not just Democrats are big spenders. You have to have something to offer people. And mm -hmm. to your point about the right to work fight, that actually is really interesting. Um, so Oren Cass over at American Compass tweeted, the political realignment continues apace. The opportunity to translate a multi-ethnic working class conservatism into a durable governing majority is just sitting there staring at everyone. But while Trump spurred a working class realignment, he does not offer a formula for conservatives to capitalize on it. Uh, I think that's absolutely true. There's nothing on the table from Republicans right now. We saw Tom Cotton introduce a bill to increase the minimum wage uh, in the Senate. It went absolutely nowhere. Right. It was castigated uh, for, for forwarding that. Right. You've got some of these Republicans who are like, look, we're going to appeal to the working class's cultural grievances. Legitimate and then, cultural and then as grievances. And as we have them in, then we're going to win them over with minimum wage increases. We're going to we're going to shed a lot of that Reaganite kind of like right wing stuff, and we're going to we're going to actually take care of them both materially and then uh, culturally. But right, if all you can do is appeal to half of them culturally, and then you don't even give them anything, then I think you get to a place where voters get frustrated with Trump no longer on the ballot. Mm -hmm. Like, because yeah, they exactly. have to figure out where, what are they uh, in a post-Trump world, and, and if if it's just uh, grievances and vibes, at some point people aren't going to they're going to go back to where they were pre-Trump, which is not voting. Yeah, no, absolutely, completely agree. Ryan, you actually have something getting into the internecine conversations um, on the left, and I'm really excited. This was an interview with AOC. Yep. So yesterday evening, I interviewed Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to get her reaction to the election and her take on what Democrats ought to do from here. And she said that if Republicans do end up with a tiny majority in the House, Democrats ought to push them relentlessly on abortion rights, both legislatively and with executive action, to make the lives of the remaining moderates miserable. She said, quote, I think we take advantage of the disorganization of the Republican caucus. I do not believe that Kevin McCarthy is a strong leader whatsoever. And I, think we and I think we inflict a lot of pain on this. And either it becomes enough of a liability with them that they have to let something through because they're just getting killed on this issue, or they lose in two years. That they either capitulate and pass some actual legislation, or they get beaten in 2024 over it. So you can, you can read the, the first part of the interview, which goes over a bunch of different stuff as well over at The Intercept. But I wanted to play some of the rest of it here and then get Emily's response. Back, back on that point about making some pain uh, for... Uh, Republic for Republicans on abortion rights. Like, if you do end up losing those seats in New York, probably a lot of them are going to be, you know, uncomfortable with the Republican position and kind of politically vulnerable around it. Uh -huh. Yet they do feel pretty confident saying that they're against WIPA because they caricature it as, you know, uh, you know, killing babies right at right before birth or uh -huh. you know whatever their talking points are. And it, but WIPA does go beyond codifying Roe v. Wade. So where do you come down on the question of trying to get get the codification of Roe into law versus holding out for the kind of maximalist WIPA legislation? Well, you know, I think when it comes to something like WIPA, I think that Republicans, you know, a lot of this is just about messaging, right? And so... Roe, I think in the in public imagination, I believe that Roe really stands for and what people really see as Roe is 
is a woman or a person's ability to have bodily autonomy and make these decisions between them and their doctor. And um, Republicans, where they tried to go in against WIPA is by trying to slice and dice and make these questions about 15 weeks or 20 weeks or 30 weeks. And I don't, and like, I think for a very long time, people have kind of run away from that fight. I don't think that we need to litigate number of weeks. I think if anything, in the aftermath of Roe, there have been an enormous amount of conversations about the enormous amount of circumstances in which a person, like these are, in which like this is not applying to this kind of myth of third trimester elective abortions where like there's nothing else that's wrong. Um, and I, you know, I think that w when we try to like really bring this down and campaign on WIPA, I, I think we do ourselves a disservice by like, I think we can remain focused on the overall principle here, which is people should be able to make these decisions between themselves and their doctor. So how do you think that uh, answer kind of resonates with uh, the moderate Republicans that she'll be. So in other words, we were talking in the first segment about New York where a bunch, you know, maybe four or five uh, Republicans are going to win by a couple thousand votes in these mm -hmm. New York districts. Uh, they are extremely vulnerable to losing in 2024. Yeah. So the idea would be that every day they'd have to be, fa they'd be facing pressure from constituents, get behind Democrats to codify Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Uh, and then they would say, yeah, but they're extremists yeah. because they want to kill babies you know, right, right before they're born. Yeah. Um, do you think that she's right that this is a messaging issue, not a, not, not, not a, and toward the very end, she was like, I don't think we're at a place where we're compromising yet. Like, mm -hmm. It seemed like she was leaving the door open for, for compromising, but she was like, she's like, we haven't tried everything yet. Mm -hmm. So what, what do you think? As you, as you listen to that, so I think she's right. That is that it is a messaging fight. Um, but I think that in the irony is in that same answer. First of all, she corrected herself when she said, "In the public imagination, people see Roe as being something that's about a woman's right to choose." She said, "Woman or person." Corrected herself. That might seem like a little thing, but in the messaging battle uh, for independence. That's not going to fly. When you can say, uh, when Republicans can say this is absurd, that's not going to fly. Um, when you talk about the myth of why people get seek third trimester abortions, um, and that there's nothing else wrong. Well, there are, it depends. Um, but when there's the sort of broad mental health categorization that a lot of people seek their trimester abortions under, that's also not going to fly in the messaging fight because there's a lot Republicans can do. And but does that happen? Yes, that happens. And it, it does. And Guttmacher has interesting numbers on that, actually. It was a pro-abortion think tank. Mm -hmm. um, it, but even, again, like this was what was bad for Ralph Northam, was even people hearing about one. I mean, even mm -hmm. if it's rare, it's extremely abhorrent, in the, to borrow a phrase, the public imagination. And Republicans, I think, are correct. A lot of the fallout from the midterm conversation um, the SBA list, so a big pro-life group, they came in and said right away that the Republicans who had clear and convincing principle and answers on abortion did well, as opposed to Dr. Oz. So like, if you look at what Dr. Oz does, he didn't want to talk about abortion. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's a, the correct take. I think it, it definitely is in the case of Oz. Um, but Republicans really believe that they can neutralize Democrats' conversations about codifying Roe 
with things like WIPA. And that's kind of the point that you're, you mm-hmm. were getting to about the political sort of calculus here. Um, and, and I think that's what uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez is missing, that there's something Republicans really can seize on. And maybe she, she knows that, but those sort of the cultural conversation the left wants to have around abortion is um, in the same way that the Republican position on pre-15-week bans um, my position on abortion is wildly unpopular with the American people. It is not a popular position whatsoever. Neither is the sort of other end of that spectrum on the left. And um, in a state like New York, where Republicans are clearly making inroads uh, to for Lee Zeldin to be within five points, hmm. it's a big deal. Um, you're right. I, I think you're you're right that they would be very vulnerable in the next couple of years. Those people who won those House seats. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. So why did I, I mean I. I so why didn't it work for Republicans this time? I mean, like if that argument works, is was it too close to Roe and it's too raw? Like if if the counter to hey Roe was overturned, we're, we're angry, we're going to vote to get it back into law. If the counter to that is well, Democrats are going to do extremist stuff that's going to kill babies. Why didn't that counter blunt the abortion ener- abortion rights energy in this election? I mean, I think it did in Wisconsin. You have Ron Johnson hanging in, uh, mm. hanging in there. I think there was a lot, you know, spent on DeSantis and Rubio, and they hung in there pretty clearly. Um, I think Beto and Stacey Abrams tried that um, and lost pretty decisively. So I guess we'll see in Nevada and Arizona. Those are very close races that could go the other way. Right, 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 right. And so that's not to say, like, I actually think it's it's completely true. And I get into this a little bit in my thing. Like, there was an underestimation of how much the abortion issue would help Democrats, especially as we look at the youth voter turnout. Um, so, no, I, I mean, I don't deny that at all. But I do think uh, Democrats, as they as they moved away, especially in recent weeks, from talking about abortion, like over the last couple of weeks, it wasn't a long time. Uh, they spent a lot talking about abortion. But as they moved away from it, and they moved away in some of those swing state races probably earlier from talking so much about it, it was because Republicans were successfully sort of— they, and Republicans mm. never used to do this. They never used to say— well, like Carrie Lake did this once. She talked to a reporter and she was like, did you ask Democrats what restrictions that they would support? Mm-hmm. Um, and so on and the Carrie right- Lake might win. M- might win. Right, um, she, yeah. Might win despite, yeah, she, she, might, she might win. And so Republicans believe that's sort of the ticket. That's, if they can tap into that, um, that'll be a way to neutralize this conversation. So if, if Democrats believe that this never happens, then theoretically or in principle, they should be able to write laws and regulations around it that don't actually impact anybody. Their, their concern, as she articulated it, is that you're going to wind up in a situation where you have ectopic pregnancies and other complications mm-hmm. um, that require medical intervention, but are then caught up in the regulatory apparatus rather than just the medical apparatus, and that that shouldn't be the case, that you need to um, just get Get the law out of here. Just let these decisions be between patients and and doctors. Uh, so th- I mean, that's their that's their counter argument. But if it's also true that it never happens, mm-hmm. you would think there's got to be a way to satisfy the normie voter who who who's against that and finds it like brutal. Yeah. And, and to undercut the Republican uh, counter arguments by saying, okay, yeah, of course, like. Elective, purely elective third trimester abortions should should not be should not be legal, which is 
if which is under Roe, like that's codifying Roe. Mm-hmm. Roe allows yes. states after viability to to enact laws around what can and can't be done. So if you're if you're for and Democrat, so Democrats but it also have leaves it problem. open, and Republicans right. see that as a political kind of gift. Right. That codifying Roe leaves it open to the states and doesn't ban that. Which I think is a better fight for Democrats to have. Yeah, like let, right. You're right. Like let, then let now you have Republicans against codifying Roe. Right. Yes. And, and so and, now you're making them fight on the, on very unpopular terrain for them. And we talked about this a lot over the summer that when you look at the polling between the popularity of Roe and then what Roe actually did, so you can like the distinction between what the public thinks about Roe and what the public thinks about the like actual policy of Roe um, is totally different, and that's fine. I mean, it's to be expected, and, and that's what AOC was saying right. that the public imagination about what Roe is is different. And I think to your point. Um, that yeah, I think she's she's ultimately right. Like this is about messaging. I just think to exactly everything we're talking about, the left doesn't realize um, what that messaging battle looks like for them. And, and just so that we have the numbers, this is 2019. National Review is writing about the Guttmacher, Guttmacher Institute. It's actually from David French, who's uh, not at National Review anymore. It says, Guttmacher pro-abortion uh, think tank has looked at the reasons, reasons for late-term abortion and the reasons are chilling. This is from French. First, the top-line finding is clear. This is a quote from Guttmacher. Data suggests that most women seeking later terminations are not doing so for reasons of fetal anomaly or life endangerment. Instead, there were, quote, five general profiles of women who sought later abortions, describing 80% of the sample. These women were raising children alone, were depressed or using illicit substances, were in conflict with a male partner or experiencing domestic violence, had trouble deciding, and then had access problems or were young um, and had never given birth. So that's from Guttmacher. That's a quote from Guttmacher. Um, Those are third trimester? Yeah. So that's a... Does it say what the numbers were? That was eight, so 80% of the sample. But do you know what the sample, well, I mean, do we know that, but I mean, to your point, one is going to be enough to to make the argument, but do we know what the numbers are? Of of how many? Yeah. Um, Well, I'll, here, let me click on the study. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's a big, so, oh, of how many people get late-term abortions? Yeah, that is right here. It's... um, it's only 1.3% of abortions after 21 weeks. Um, but Guttmacher has put that number even higher. That's the CDC number. That They say there's roughly 12,000 late-term abortions per year. Okay. Which is, again, like as the chunk of total abortions, very small. Minuscule, but 12,000. Enough right. enough to make a political argument around for yeah. sure. Yeah. It um, is a very small percentage. And enough for normies to, to care about. Uh, so, in the Matt Cartwright-Jim uh, Bognet debate, mm-hmm. um, what Bognet kept hitting— uh, Matt Cartwright on was elective abortions over gender, and you know uh, you find out you've got uh, either a boy or a girl, and you wanted the opposite gender, yeah. and so there's an there's an abortion, and he's like that's that's brutal, that that's terrible, and I'm sure that polls ninety percent of people would say like that's yes yes they disagree with that. It it that 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 feels like the kind of thing that Democrats could say okay you know what you can't do that mm-hmm. because there are so many other reasons that somebody could get an abortion at 10 weeks, mm-hmm. eight weeks, what, mm-hmm. you know, 14, whatever mm-hmm. it is, uh, pre-viability, that they don't have to say that. Mm-hmm. Like, so how do you, like, you're, you're, that's, re- that's, that's regulating thoughts that you can't have. Right. And it's impossible to prove. So it seems like something Democrats could actually just give on. Like, yeah, you know what, fine, you cannot have an abortion over uh, gender. Mm-hmm. But and it actually wouldn't have any impact because somebody could say they're having it for a different reason because it's up to them. And 
previously, when Roe was in law, it w- was was in effect, I, I can see why Democrats would say we're not we're not going anywhere near this. This is be- between uh, a woman and her doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now we're not we're not living in a hypothetical world where mm-hmm. abortion might be banned. We're in a world where abortion is banned. So what are you going to do uh, in order to change that? Yeah. Or or nothing. You're just going to sit there and. This is a conversation that dogged the pro-life movement for decades about uh, incrementalism. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's what it was was called in sort of conservative circles for a really long time. And it was a a bitter debate. And that's where we saw, you know, protests over, um, you know, pro-life people getting arrested outside abortion clinics. Um, When you're on the other side of it, the stakes are really, really, really high, um, obviously. And it draws you into that conversation about what's— politically expedient versus what is right, and is what's politically expedient what's right. Um, and that's a really tough conversation to have. Obviously, the pro-life movement cited on uh, that, that the latter position, that what's politically expedient, like we need to do whatever we can do um, to curb this practice, even if it's not the full measure. And I think for Democrats, that conversation is now coming into focus. And really, honestly, people are just sit there and say, in the same way that they look at pro-life, pro-life activists saying life begins at conception, they're saying, really, you're defending that. Um, you're, you're defending fertilization. Like you're, we, we have technology increasingly to see what that looks like after the first week or so. Really? That's what yeah. you're going to bat for? Well, when you have AOC, and I really liked your interview because I think she was pretty transparent in working through her thoughts mm-hmm. in the conversation with you. As she was sort of working through those thoughts, um, one thing that's glaring is people are like, people are going to say, why are you, why are you going to the mat for that? That like, we know what that baby looks like in the third trimester. We know what that looks like after 21 weeks. Why are you fighting for that? Although there's a window. That's where the, most of the country I is. think there's a window of the future here in the sense that if, if she and others are saying that this is a messaging fight, people are willing to change their messaging to win. Yeah. And, but they're not willing, most people are not going to change their principles to win. Right. right. So she's not saying this is a principled stand. Right. She's saying at this point, it's a messaging fight. And we think we can drive this message, beat these moderate Republicans, right. and that it will be seen in the public imagination as about Roe, and that they will fail to move it into this extremist uh, territory. If she's wrong about that, and it's a messaging fight, then they'll they'll do different messaging. Yeah, I think that's totally true on Medicare for All. You know, like, I, I think absolutely— um, Bold progressive, and we saw that happen in the the nomination, right? Like in the 2020 nominating battle, um, mm-hmm. everyone adopted all of these sort of Bernie adjacent positions, like really quickly, with maybe the exception of Biden in a couple of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, know, you have like corporatists like Kamala Harris right. um, so going to the Hamptons to raise insurance. money and yeah. saying Medicare for all. Um, but I don't think abortion is an issue like that. I just, I, I especially when you're fighting uh, for something like WIPA. I don't think so. I just don't think it works out the same way. This is such a good interview, though. I'm, I'm really glad we played the audio here. And we'll have more of it tomorrow. In the second half of the interview, we talked a lot about the, the left and the kind of disunity that we've seen online, mm. um, what, what, what her role is in that, how she's been responding to it, how, she, how she's uh, thinking it through. I didn't want to put it all up together because I wanted to let the, the first half, the midterm reaction stuff, breathe. Mm. So we'll, we can do that uh, tomorrow. Looking forward to it.
the tidal wave narrative really started building over the course of the last week or so, just the last week, when races that seemed to lean Democrat were categorized instead as toss-ups. Think of New Hampshire's Senate race and the governor races in New York and Michigan. Democrats won all of those races comfortably when all was said and done. Some polls overestimated Republican support during the home stretch, perhaps because, as Robert Cahalia of Trafalgar was saying ahead of the election, they were trying to correct for Republican voters who didn't want to talk to pollsters or say how they planned to vote. That had worked previously for some pollsters like Trafalgar when Trump was on the ballot. Some polls were also reasonably close. Oddly, in Oklahoma, the polls had Republican Governor Kevin Stitt in a much tougher race. He ended up winning by double digits. Some polls had him down. Basically, the hits and misses were absolutely all over the place. The polling industry is in a state of crisis. We saw that in 2016, we saw it in 2020, and pollsters are not shy about saying any of this either. All of this cycle, they were warning us that the industry was struggling badly. Nevertheless, campaigns and media outlets have to rely on some barometers of public opinion, so money and media coverage follows the polls. Think about that. And think about how it affects where the money and the media coverage ends up. It's not just political bias, clearly. It's about rapid shifts in technology, big early and mail-in voting pushes, and generational shifts that basically make it really hard for pollsters to confidently capture voting patterns. Think about youth turnout. It seems likely that pollsters and pundits may have underestimated the effect abortion had on driving up turnout among young, younger voters and student loan forgiveness as well. Ryan and Crystal actually zeroed in on that possibility as the returns were still coming in on Tuesday. We sit here all cycle not to dismiss the logic of Democrats' heavy focus on abortion and democracy because midterm cycles are about turnout. Personally, I didn't underestimate the effect of those narratives, but I did overestimate the effect of inflation, assuming turnout from economic voters would offset it. And as I said here last week, that Democrats were botching their democracy messaging by separating it entirely from the economy. Political consultants are dumb and overpriced, that's true, but they don't want to lose. That's just not good for business. Something was telling them to push abortion heavily, and that's a perfectly plausible explanation for one of the reasons Fetterman, who benefited big time from early voting even before his debate, it's probably around half a million votes for him were cast, defeated Oz, who never had a good answer on abortion. The same goes for democracy in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania's governor races. Some of my quick takeaways on the 30,000-foot level are that Republicans continue to dramatically underestimate how big of a disadvantage raw MAGA can be. You can't replicate whatever it is about Donald Trump that brings Rust Belt voters to him and not Oz, or to him and not Mastriano, or to him and not Herschel Walker. That doesn't fly, even in a bad economy with an unpopular president and certain crimes surging in certain areas and cities like Milwaukee and Philadelphia. Republicans also take the, quote, realignment for granted, assuming that Fetterman and Tim Ryan and Mandela Barnes couldn't compete in those Obama-Trump areas they felt had become solidly red. I mean, yeah, that's just not going to happen with Dr. Oz. You should look at the change in Erie County, uh, their Senate and governor races from 2020 to 2022. Oz, we said many times here, is basically the worst person to put up against John Fetterman, who, especially before uh, his, his unfortunate stroke, was a very good candidate. Economic populism is not whatever Dr. Oz ran on. It's about making people feel understood and heard and then explaining a clear plan. 
Orrin Cass over at the Conservative American Compass put it well on Twitter, writing, quote, while Trump spurred a working class realignment, he does not offer a formula for conservatives to capitalize on it. Successfully assembling a new coalition requires coherent economic principles and a concrete agenda, not just rejection of what came before. That's exactly what Republicans ran on this cycle. By the way, rejection of what would come before them, Joe Biden. The wrong lesson for Republicans would be that Trump was mistaken to blow up the GOP and everything to just go back to the days of Mitt Romney. The blow-up had to happen, but rebuilding from the wreckage might be a job for someone else. All that is to say, the narrative is frustrating. Even the GOP's losses in Oregon and New York are pretty big wins for Republicans and pretty big, on the flip side, black eyes for Democrats. Whatever happens in LA for Karen Bass could turn out that way too. Still, I do like how one Twitter user put it in response to me that those races demonstrated more of a blue backlash than a red wave. And the distinction between those two is pretty important. Also, there's a good chance right now Republicans take the House and the Senate as it stands while we're having this conversation. That was totally written off after Dobbs. The media coverage about what was going to happen to Republicans after Dobbs and all summer, by the way, as gas prices went down a little bit, um, was basically writing off Republican gains in, in a lot of different places. The huge GOP margins in Florida are very bad news for Democrats. Ron Johnson, J.D. Vance, Marco Rubio, Brian Kemp, and Adam Laxalt, among others, Laxalt we don't totally know yet, prevailed. The media's big storyline that democracy was hanging by a thread crumbled, as did the summer narrative about Dobbs crushing GOP hopes just across the board. Of course, it's true that as polling started to indicate a tidal wave was possible, that benchmark was set, and anything short of great would be bad for Republicans. But it wasn't a really good night for anyone, for Republicans, Democrats, pollsters, or the media. Our politics are just a mess right now, and the midterms reflected that. Ryan, it's kind of crazy because as the... We'll continue this conversation tomorrow. There's plenty to talk about. Um, you're getting a full dose of counterpoints <laughs> Friday this week. It's sort of like if it's, it's, if it's a Sunday, it's meet the press. But for us, it's if it's Thursday, it's, it's counterpoints, counterpoints Friday. Friday. <laughs> <laughs> See you tomorrow. See you guys. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, 
Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.